If you would, remain standing and take out your Bibles for the reading of God's Word. We'll continue in the book of 1 Corinthians, starting in chapter 4, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? This ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome once again. Before we look to God's word, let's go to him in prayer to prepare to hear from him. Lord, every week, We ask for help. Help to, to understand. Help for me to communicate your word to your people. Do so now, Lord, this hour we pray. Power of your spirit, give us ears to hear. Sanctify your people in the truth, for your word is truth, we ask. For Christ's sake, amen. The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Um, the kingdom, of course, refers to the present spiritual sense of God um, reigning over his people. That is the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when he talks about power here, he's not talking about hocus pocus, you know, false signs and wonders that we hear about today, but rather a cross-centered life that comes from Christ. Power. With that in mind, let us all consider this question to be applied to yourself, not someone across the room. Is my Christian life a matter of talk Or a spiritual reality? Is it a life of mere words, or do I know something of the power of the cross, the power of grace, the, the power of the work of God the Holy Spirit in and through my life? Let us consider that for ourselves as we work our way through this message this morning because that, that's what Paul is after with these Corinthians. The passage we just read contains counsel um, rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Concluding an argument, remember, that we began back in chapter 1 and verse 10, it runs all the way through chapter 4 and verse 21. That is all one unit of thought, and we've been at it for weeks. So this last paragraph wraps up the first major section of this epistle. Chapters 5 and 6 make up the next section. Now, in the Corinthian church, remember that, that prideful boasting and eloquent religious entertainment had replaced solid biblical teaching. A problem then, and a problem today. The Corinthians prized oratory and rhetoric while dismissing the Apostle Paul as an inferior speaker. And thus he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, When I came to you, brethren, 
I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's how I preach, says the apostle. Now, Paul was writing this epistle to reestablish them on the foundation of the gospel. Prospering as they were from a worldly perspective, they were having major issues in almost every area of church life. From factionalism, we've been looking at that for weeks, to sexual sin and the absence of church discipline, chapter 5, issues relating to marriage, singleness, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, and disorderly worship services, to name but a few. And the primary factor contributing to those problems was the influence of society. Moored as they were to the floating cabana of culture drifting further and further away into worldliness. Far from the gospel moorings that Paul had established the 18 months that he was there. And he writes this now from Ephesus. Attracted as they were to a culture filled with philosophy, prosperity, trade, and success, all of that was coloring the way they saw themselves and life as a church. Not realizing that where culture reigns, it has power. It was reigning over their hearts. It was reigning over their minds. Culture has the power to shape and influence our thinking, our values, our attitudes, and our doctrine, if we allow it to reign. So Paul, he, he wants to recalibrate their navigation system to think correctly about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the cross. Now, friends, it's not as though they had been bewitched as the Galatians were, by the Judaizers who perverted the gospel. That wasn't the problem in Corinth. The problem with Corinth was that they thought that they had grown beyond the gospel. They, they, they are moving on to you know, bigger and better things, you know, higher things. You know, they were hyper-spiritual. They believed that when you enter the Christian life, it, it, at that moment, is one quantum leap into triumph and glory in the here and now. Hyper, you ever meet a hyper-spiritual person? They're not rooted in this. Everything's about experience with them. That was the problem here. You don't grow beyond the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. You don't grow beyond that to bigger and greater things. And as soon as you think you have, you've moved backwards. Witness? Amen. When, when I start here, it's amen here, amen, amen, amen. So to, to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ is to have our root, roots grow deeper and deeper in the gospel. That's what growing in grace and knowledge is. Deeper and deeper in the gospel, and as I've said over the weeks, the cross of Jesus Christ and him crucified is the eye of the needle through which all the blessings and doctrines of God come to us. So Paul here um, isn't simply instructing the Corinthians to be orthodox in your understanding of the gospel. What he's after is, look, I also want you to be transformed by the message of the cross. 
to be conformed not to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, to put it in the language of Romans 12. That's what he's after. The kingdom does not consist in words, but in power. Talk is cheap, says Paul. So now, with a strong um, concluding appeal to this first section of the letter, Paul implores these people. He exhorts them. He warns them. And here now, in verse 14, there's a marked change in Paul's tone. He, he, he comes at them now as a father would to his children. Fatherly affection. Now, Paul is angry. Paul is angry with them, but anger will not have the last word. Notice in verse 14, I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. Now remember, verses 6 through 13 were sarcastically humiliating. They're dripping with sarcasm. If you miss the sarcasm, you miss the text. We looked at that last Lord's Day. Now, they had much to be ashamed about, did they not? And, and by the way, before we move on, just in case you're one who reads this and thinks anything that smacks of guilt and shame in preaching has no place in the church, okay? If, 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 if you're tempted to camp out and pitch your tent on verse 14 as a kind of landing place to your conviction that shame has no place in the church, you need to read on. Amen? In chapter 6 and verse 5 and chapter 15 and verse 34, he writes these words, I say this to your shame. Woo! So it wasn't beyond Paul to say things that put these swollen-headed Corinthians who had pompous ideas to shame. Sometimes it is necessary to do that. Jeremiah 8. You can just listen to this. I don't have this for you. Um, the Lord, through the prophet, refers to the lying pen of the scribes. Uh, and, and, and the declaration of peace, peace, when there is no peace. The Lord asked this question through the prophet. Were they ashamed because of the abomination that they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. And they did not even know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. They shall be brought down, says the Lord. Now, often, shame is the beginning of repentance. Shame is the beginning of repentance because when we realize that we have offended and or misrepresented our Lord, what's the first feeling? Or it ought to be shame. I said something the other day off the cuff, and immediately I was ashamed for misrepresenting the Lord in the ridiculous thing I said, whether it was my tone or whatever it was, but all of it together, really. But see, that, that's the first church step of church discipline, is it not? God the Holy Spirit convicting you, and I was ashamed, and it led to my repentance, to confess and to repent, to, to turn, to change your thinking. But nevertheless, Paul's goal here was not merely to shame the Corinthians, but to admonish his children. Admonish is the word nutheteo. You've probably heard of nuthetic counseling. It comes from that word, nutheteo. Here's the problem. Here's the issue. Here's what the word says. Apply the word. Fix the problem. Repent, basically. This is, this is criticism given in love. This is a rebuke. This is like a father disciplining his children. Living as we do in a hypersensitive, pampered society, it's a pathetic epidemic. Unfortunately, Many people in the church are importing hypersensitivity into the church so that today, many people who call themselves Christians, they do not know how to take convicting preaching. They see it as a personal attack. 
a personal insult. It is though the goal of the preacher is to make me feel bad. Emphasis, me. They grimace. They become disgruntled. You know, they go out in town and they run into you at Vaughn's and they talk negatively about the pastor, preacher, because they think, you know, they're personally being attacked. As a matter of fact, I think it was just this past week, a pastor in town is preaching through 1 Kings. And he's teaching about the danger of immaturity and leadership. You know how David prayed for Solomon because he was young and he didn't know what he didn't know. Immature. Well, a group of millennials in that church who happened to be in leadership, they took it personally and they said to the pastor, you were talking about us. And now they're threatening to leave the church. Look, if I were that pastor, I'd give them a chance to repent. And if they didn't, I'd say, don't make threats you don't keep. Let me show you to the door. It's ridiculous. You know, Sinclair Ferguson said, one of the lessons that we need to learn is to live with the cost of our message being rejected. Rejected. Conviction should lead to repentance. If not, the result is continued arrogance, verse 18. Remember, Corinth was... The greatest problem there was pride. Pride. So Paul says, look, I want to admonish you. Look at this. I want to admonish you as my beloved children. That's his goal, verse 15. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, you do not have many fathers. Now, literally, he says here, um, if you were to have myriads, that is tens of thousands of tutors, it's hyperbole, obviously. But let me say something about this word um, tutor. It's the word pedagogos, pedagogue, pedagogos, pedagogues, educators. In Paul's day, in Paul's day, um, slaves of households were used, or you would hire if you had wealth, a servant assigned to watch over your children. They would tutor them. That is, they would accompany them to and from school. They would tutor them in proper conduct, speech, grammar, and diction. A household slave. And and typically, this household slave carried around with him a stick to persuade the children, and he had permission to do so from his master. So Paul is likely using this as somewhat of a jab, using a term that had a distinct negative cultural connotation. Pedagogos, right? Or pedagogos. So as a trustworthy household slave, and indeed they would be trustworthy, you're not just going to send your kids off with any stranger, um, he was in charge of behavior and education and served as a, as a guardian, and he had permission to use the rod if need be. He was served more like a corrections officer than an actual, what we know as a tutor today. You know, the same word, by the way, uh, pedagogos, is used in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, where he says that the law, the law of God, was a pedagogos, a tutor that leads us to leads us to Christ. Now, one of the motivations in Corinthian culture to get people to do what you wanted them to do, particularly with these children, was um, open shame. You know, and it, you, know, sh- you know, some cultures, um, you're better off dying than to be shamed openly and publicly. Well, here, Paul is saying, look, If you were to have countless tutors in Christ like that, who lead you more like a hired gun, you think these guys are so good, that you think these tutors are so great, context, 
the sophists and rhetoricians of the day who were coupling philosophy of the day, Hellenistic philosophy with the gospel. You think they're so great, brandishing rods of higher um, wisdom. If you were to have countless tutors in Christ like that, verse 15b, yet you would not have many fathers. See the affection here? For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. In other words, I'm not standing over you with a big stick to, ready to publicly shame you. Because your rhetoric wasn't slick enough, wasn't polished enough. Now granted, I've said some pretty harsh things. I've used some pretty harsh sarcasm, but Paul's point is, look, I'm not doing so to, to, as, for the ultimate goal to be that of shaming you. As a matter of fact, that's a, that, that's a goal far too small, you Corinthians. Look, I became your father, and the word I hear in the passage is emphatic. I became your father. I birthed you through the gospel. I am the human instrument through whom Christ came to you. I laid the foundation, chapter 3. And there is no other foundation that could be laid than Jesus Christ alone, amen. That's how I came to you. I have begotten you in Christ, and therefore, I have fatherly jealousy for you. Can you imagine, dads, come home from work, pull into your driveway, neighbor pulls into his driveway at the same time, boom, doors open, front door of your house, your kids come running out, you get down on one knee, you put your arms out, they run right past you to the neighbor and embrace him. <laughs> Would you have fatherly jealousy? That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. In 2 Corinthians 11, verse 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to Christ. I brought the free grace gospel to you. I preached Jesus Christ in him crucified. I taught you that the consequence of sin is death. I taught you the wage of sin is death. You've earned your wage. You will pay for your sin. I taught you that in your place, Christ came and lived the life that only he could live in your place, that he upheld the law of God, that he laid down his life in the place of all those who believe, that his blood was shed to appease the wrath of the Father, the free grace gospel I betrothed you. See, these Corinthians, Corinthians were acting as though they had grown beyond Paul. They kind of washed their hands of the man. They've moved on to these tutors who were taking them to new levels. You ever met people like that? Well, I've kind of grown beyond so-and-so. I'm, I'm off to new and higher things. Now, the Bible calls you a fool. Paul says, you may have a thousand of those guys. There's only one of me. And then comes the therefore. Verse 16. Therefore, as your daddy, as your spiritual father, I exhort you, be imitators of me. Notice. Not them and their rhetoric, but me, your spiritual father. Let, let's be honest. Who among us would go to another brother or sister and say, look, brother, I want to exhort you. I want to build you up in the faith. Imitate me. Anybody? Think about this. In the first century, most of those who came to faith in Jesus Christ through Paul's ministry, came out of just rank, raw paganism. From out of Gentile, you know, mystery religions, out of Greek mythology. Now, they had the Spirit of God. They were born again of the Spirit, but they had no Christian heritage to draw from. They didn't have parents that they watched over the years or grandparents they watched follow the one true God. 
No example whatsoever. So here comes Paul. They listened to his words and they watched his life. And he was with them for 18 months. So here you have converted pagans who had his example and his words to glean from. Now remember, they had become now a a hyper-spiritual group of people um, influenced by the culture, and they had, make, they had made the grave mistake of, of the not yet for the already. In other words, many promises that we have by way of the gospel, we don't get until the new heaven and the new earth, and they thought themselves to have already um, achieved um, that quantum leap, leap into, into a life of triumphalism as we covered last week. So notice, Paul says with that in mind, be imitators of me, verse 10, um, you know, you, you think you've all arrived, but, you know, I, I, I um, am one who's looked at as a fool for Christ's sake. Imitate that. Imitate me there. You know, we, the apostles, we're, we're weak, we're without honor, we've been treated roughly, we're reviled, we're slandered, uh, we are the scum of the world. Imitate that. Hmm. He says to those who, notice verse 8, think that they are already kings. That's the sarcasm. Oh, you're already kings. You're already rich spiritually. You already reign. To them, he says, imitate me. A gospel-centered life. Later in chapter 11, in verse 1, he'll say, be imitators of me just as I also am of what? Christ. Is that egotistical? No, that's biblical. That's biblical. Parents, do we not want to be able to say to our children, our walk with Christ certainly hasn't been perfect. It hasn't been sinless. But what you have heard and seen in your mother and I, um, our faith, our sincerity of the faith, gospel conformity, young ones, imitate that. Amen? Yeah. Imitate that. You know, there are people in this congregation. I'm not going to name you. I'm not even going to look out there. <laughs> there are, when I've counseled other people, and they struggle in particular areas, I will name one of you, male, female, and I will say, you see that person? Imitate them. You watch them. Imitate them. And I'm going to look back down. Some of you all, I do that with other people. Because you live a life that I think should be imitated. Paul says, imitate me. Follow me as I follow Christ. That's his counsel, verse 17. For this reason, I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. For this reason. What reason? To help you remember that reason. To help you remember my ways which are in Christ. I'm sending Timothy, my duplicate. Remember what Paul said of Timothy? In Philippians, that I have no one like him who's of a kindred spirit. I have no one like that brother. Faithful. True. To the gospel. So Timothy is kind of like, you know, a poster child. He's the model child of the faith who imitates Paul as Paul imitates Christ. He says, I'm sending him to you. Now, unfortunately, think about where these Corinthians are. At the end of this letter... Paul must tell these Corinthians to treat him well when he arrives. Treat him well. In verses 10 and 11, chapter 16, he says this, See that he is with you without cause to be afraid. Let no one despise him. What a shame for the Corinthian church that he would even have to write that. Isn't it? They hated Paul. The man who betrothed them, they despised the man. 
You see more of that in 2 Corinthians. But he, a beloved brother, my faithful child, Timothy, I'm going to send him to remind you of my ways in Christ. Just, notice, just as I teach everywhere in every church. What does that tell us? It tells us that Paul was consistent in his doctrine everywhere he went. You got guys today. Okay, they travel around from church to church. Seven suits and seven sermons. Yeah? So they'll go into some church and say, ah, they don't really like this one particular doctrine, so um, I'll just avoid that. And they just move with the tide. They shift with the tide. They shave off the truth, not Paul. I preached the same message in every church, everywhere I went. That's why I was beaten with rods. That's why I was stoned and left for dead. That's why I was whipped, struck, mocked. That's why I'm viewed as the scum of the earth. Consistent with the message. When, when, when Timothy comes, he's going to be just as consistent. No novelty with my student Timothy. No, no, no innovative ministry methods with my boy Timothy. He'll remind you of my ways. I betrothed you in Christ. You want to follow these tutors who carry around a big stick? Remember my ways. So Timothy was, was Paul's spiritual son. Faithful and true. Beloved, faithful child in the Lord. He was Paul's duplicate. Do you, Pacific Oak Church, Christian brother, Christian sister, let me ask you this. Have you any spiritual children? Have you any spiritual children? Have you reproduced yourself in the lives of other, uh, others? Do you have some spiritual, um, biological offspring? If not, why not? As we're discipled, we're called to make disciples. Disciples. Notice now, Paul comes back um, to, to his warning, verse 18. Now, some have become arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. Now, in their arrogance, um, they were saying, you know, Paul, he's nothing but a windbag. He's just threatening us. He, he's not going to show up here. Do, do we not all understand what it is to be irresponsible when the authority figure is not around? You remember your substitute teachers in high school? Poor people. <laughs> or when dad's away, my mom would say, you just wait until what? You wait till your dad gets home. Sometimes she didn't give the report, and I was thankful. <laughs> when I had done wrong, like really wrong, I remember waiting, in, like trembling, trembling, I'm serious, waiting for my father to come. I, I had stolen something, and I got caught. Trembling. And my dad rarely spanked me. You know why? He didn't have to. I feared him. I had a reverent fear for him. Wait till your apostle comes home. <laughs> now, you, you, you don't think I'm coming. Some of you are arrogant, saying I won't come, but I will come to you if the Lord wills. Now, he reiterate, reiterates that in chapter 16, if the Lord wills. Who can boast about tomorrow anyhow? It's always if the Lord wills. And I shall find out, notice, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. So though he addresses the entire church, you know, the apostle realizes that there is a group of others influencing some within the church from within the church. You don't want to do that. sowing seeds of discord. You don't want to do that ever in a church. 
because you are the what? Temple of God. Try to destroy the temple of God. We read a couple weeks ago, and God will what? He'll destroy you. You don't mess with his church. And to do so from within, danger. Capital D, danger. But some are arrogant. I'll find out. I'll find out those who are arrogant, not according to their rhetoric, not according to their polished speech, but according to their lives. I'll see if there's power there or not. You see this? He contrasts what he did earlier. Verse 17, chapter 1, empty words of eloquent wisdom as compared to real power that comes by way of the unadulterated gospel. That's where the power is. And I'll see if it's being lived out through your lives or not. Because you can talk all day, says Paul. Verse 20, for the kingdom of God does not consist in words but in power. Now, when he talks about power, he's not talking about the word of God. Okay, because that is power in and of itself, amen? So you don't take from this, we'll see. Uh, we don't need to necessarily preach the whole counsel of God. We don't need to be focused on a lot of preaching because well, you, you know, he's concerned with power. And in this case, it's just the spiritual power, hyper-spiritual power. No, truth and adherence to God's word manifests a powerful gospel life. That's what he's talking about. He talks about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God refers to the reign of God in and through the lives of his people. Now, let's talk about the kingdom of God briefly. When we talk about God as being sovereign over his creation, his created order, is there anything that's not under his authority? No, he's absolutely sovereign. He's an absolute sovereign authority. Here we're talking about the kingdom with regard to God as redeemer. That is his kingdom exercised in and through Jesus Christ, God's one and only mediator. What did Jesus say to his disciples? All power and authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples. That's the kingdom he's talking about during Jesus' earthly ministry. We hear about the inbreaking of the kingdom because the king had arrived. Jesus said to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is what? Among you. The kingdom of God is among you, talking about his own presence among the people. The king and in his power, his authority have arrived. And now he mediates it through his Apostles, through the disciples, to us this very day, uh, the kingdom of the crucified, resurrected, and ascended Lord Jesus Christ being carried out by way of his people. That's the power of the gospel made manifest. Do we see this, beloved? Kingdom focus, preaching his gospel, baptizing his converts, discipling his people with the whole counsel of God. That's kingdom work. This is where they had failed. So Paul, he came preaching not only sound doctrine, he also taught people to follow Christ in a straight line. Because doctrine is tied together with ethics, amen? They go hand in hand. You know, a person can be so polished with doctrine, big doctrine talkers, and their life is a wreck. An absolute wreck, contrary to gospel living. A.W. Tozer, he said, a person can be as doctrinally straight as a gun barrel and as empty as one, too. Ooh. So a sign of immaturity is big talk, but short on action. That's their problem. Brethren, I could not, chapter 3, verse 1, speak to you as spiritual men, but I had to speak to you as though you were what? Infants in Christ. A sign of immaturity is to be big on talk and small in action. It's like my grandson. He's 
three and a half. He thinks he can do things that are not possible. And my six-year-old grandson can talk a big game. He, he sees some of you children who really know how to play the piano. I would never say this if he's here, but he thinks he already knows how to play because he can bang on some keys. He can talk big. The three-year-old thinks that he actually has power to freeze me when he has a Spider-Man um, mask on. Big talk. He thinks he can climb walls, but he's a child. He, he's a child. And his actions can't meet his boasting. That was their problem. I couldn't give you solid food. I had to give you milk because you're a bunch of babies. And again, solid food is not for, is not for smart people. Solid food, biblically speaking, is for humble people. Humble people. They were anything but humble. So Paul says, when I come, I'm going to put you to the test, not your eloquence. Oh, I know you can speak. I'm not going to test that. I'm going to assess whether you are able to speak in a demonstration of the spirit and power, a gospel-centered life, Christ and him crucified. Not rhetoric, not philosophy. Consider, beloved members of Pacific Hope, you hear someone speak, and they're coming in the name of Jesus, okay? When someone who, whose talk is entertaining, enthralling, articulate, funny, and as I said, in the name of Jesus, but when you listen closely, biblically, the question is, is there any accompanying sense of God's spirit driving home the gospel truth of Jesus Christ and him crucified into the minds and hearts of the people. That's the test. Paul continues. Now it's all up to you how I come to you. I can come to you in your repentance, or I can come to you in your unrepentance. So what do you desire? Verse 21. Shall I come to you with a rod, big stick, or with love in a spirit of gentleness? Look, if you repent of your pride, I will come with a spirit of love. That's how I'll come, in gentleness. But if you insist on continuing in your arrogant, rebellious pride, I know how to lay the wood, also in love. So what do you want? I'll find out if you have spiritual power or not. Remember how they're boasting in their spiritual gifts? You've got to remember the whole context of this letter. I mean, they thought they had just arrived, kingdom conquerors, through philosophy and spiritual gifts. So I'm not coming to hear what you've got to say. I'm coming to examine your life to see if it's, uh, it has power or not. Okay? Chapter 5 next week, he actually breaks out the rod before he ever gets there because they were not exercising church discipline. All right? So, having moved away, from the cross, they had no idea what the church was to be like, to act like, to live like. Any Christian who stirs division, and remember, there were factions here. There were divisions within this church. Any Christian who, stir, who, who stirs up division within a church, you know, constantly complaining, you know, negative, a gossipy chatterbox has moved away from the cross. myself included. Because, as we wrap up, how believers in the church of Jesus Christ treat each other reflects whether the Spirit of God is really at work among them or not. The temple of the living God. It reveals whether or not the Spirit really dwells within them and empowers their lives or not. 
He says, look, you have the spirit, now live like it. You're divided. There's, there's factions. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. Well, I'm of Christ. Grow up, he says to the church. In other words, friends, if the vertical is off, the horizontal will inevitably be off. Amen? So repentance starts here, vertically. When the gospel is embraced correctly, it will positively affect the horizontal. Unlike Corinth, it's the problem. So here Paul writes to pierce their pride, no doubt. He exposes the shallowness of their spirituality in which they boasted about. You know, you hear this talk today, we, you, you need a breakthrough. You hear this talk today, we have a breakthrough ministry. Where does that come from? What does that even mean? Well, we need a breakthrough because um, uh, we have a deliverance ministry because um, we have some Christians who, who are, um, you know, uh, possessed or, or oppressed by, you know, the demon um, of anger. Guess what? There's no such thing. Anger, resentment, bitterness within a Christian, that has, that has to do with the problem of the flesh. You understand? You need to be delivered of your um, drug addiction because you have the demon of addiction. No, that's a manifestation of the flesh. Amen? And a demon can't possess a Christian because you're possessed by the Holy Spirit. Possession has to do with ownership. You're already owned, purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. The Spirit indwells you. You don't need to be delivered from some demon. You need to repent of your sin, he says. Repent of your pride. There's no demon of pride. Amen? You can't believe the things I hear these days within churches, these ministries they have. It's utter nonsense. So Paul writes to pierce their pride, as I said. He says, look, you're puffed up. You're not build up, built up. You need to be built up. The foundation, Christ. You need to be built up on the foundation. You have a lot of drama and no depth there in Corinth. A lot of eloquence, no substance. <laughs> I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for we are not able to receive it. Even now you're not able. You are still fleshly. He doesn't say anything about being you know, oppressed by some demon. You're just fleshly. <laughs> So Paul is prescribing here some bitter medicine, amen, in love. He admonishes them in love. It hurts. They were sick with pride. They were divided. There were factions within. Uh, there was a lot of um, unfruitfulness, terrible testimony of what the church is to be. There was not, they were not solidly, in a solid manner, preaching the word of God. Terrible. It was a mess. And when you do that, you empty the cross of its power. Chapter 1, that's where the argument began. Have you followed through all the way, beloved? Let me close with this. As we conclude this first section, as a church here in San Diego, as we conclude this first section of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, my desire for this congregation is continued unity and oneness that we already have and blesses me beyond measure. When we prayed this morning with the elders, we were talking about that fact. So we've been together here now for 13 plus years. And um, what we've seen over the course of the years is this um, ever-growing levels um, of maturity among God's people that unite us firmly on the foundation of Jesus Christ and him crucified. My prayer is that we'll continue to, to see that manifest here, that we'll be brothers and sisters who, who have a common goal, and that is the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. When we have that goal in mind, the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, you can't help but be united. Amen? No factions there. That's unity. The advancement of his kingdom through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is the whole counsel of God, united. 
together as one, that we would be known, another prayer, that we would be known as a people who are not ashamed to take a firm stand on the meaning of Scripture. United as one. To be a people who are not weak or or sappy in, in doctrinal fidelity and precision. Not sappy, I said, but firm, adhering to the word of God, to hold to the faith firmly together in a spirit of meekness and humility for the glory of the name above all names. That's my hope and my prayer that the spirit of God will continue to lead us in this manner and we'd submit and thereby have a powerful testimony. That's power. That's kingdom power. To know the power of the cross, the power of grace, and the power of the work of the Holy Spirit um, in and through our lives. For when I came to you, brethren, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And finally, again, the eye of the needle That is Christ crucified. The eye of the needle is through which all the other glorious doctrines and blessings of Christ come to us. May they flow through us in power. Amen? That closes the first section of this letter to the Corinthians from the Apostle Paul. Father, we do thank you for these reminders. We do thank you for the ministry of the Apostle Paul. We do thank you that the failures of men, the failures of the church throughout redemptive history are not hidden from us. They're right here, open before us. Protect us, Lord, from ourselves. Protect us from the pressure of the culture to to sway us, that we um, not be carried away on a floating cabana of, of philosophies and rhetoric popular today, but to stay rooted and grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Bless this, your word, to the hearts of your people, I pray for Christ's sake. Amen.